Hey, this is Leslie, host of the Rogue Ones podcast. Thank you for listening to this show. You know, I did this limited series in 2018 and 2019. The world was a wildly different place, but knowing that people are still listening to it now and benefiting from these stories brings immense satisfaction. So thank you. If you want to keep up with my own rogue adventures, you can follow me on Substack. Yes, I have one too. An easy link to find that is leslieethompson.com slash Substack. I write on there frequently, but then I'll also post audio vignettes that don't fit into a typical podcast framework. I've been busy, and I bet you have been too, Rogue One. So thanks for tuning in, and I hope to hear from you soon. Now, here's the episode, and I hope you enjoy. You are now listening to the Rogue Ones podcast, conversations with extraordinary people doing fascinating things that will encourage us to live with a bend toward the remarkable. The rogue featured in this episode is an accomplished musician, but perhaps most notably, he's a heart transplant recipient whose outlook on life is full of faith and wonder. Thanks for listening today. Please enjoy. Welcome. This is Leslie Eiler Thompson, and I am host and curator of this podcast series that introduces listeners to people going rogue with stories that are quite spectacular. You might not know the folks on this show, but it's my hope that by listening to this series, you'll begin to hear the whispers of remarkable living as you interact with those around you. Today's guest is a man whose music has garnered six number one albums on the Billboard charts and more than two billion lifetime digital streams. That's billion with a B. His music is streamed over 25 million times each month. His name is Paul Cardall, and it's his incredible story that leads his remarkable career. Paul was born with congenital heart disease, and it can be rare for babies to live very long with this condition. Paul wasn't expected to live past 24 hours, but he did. And then he wasn't expected to live past six months, but he did. He kept defying the doctor's predictions, and it was through these experiences that he developed a sense of purpose. This purpose has been confirmed over and over again in Paul's life, especially when he was put on the heart transplant list and waited for over a year. Facing the heavy burden that in order for his life to continue, someone else's life must end. Paul views his work as a calling, and when one is called, going through the difficult circumstances and details isn't a chore. You're led by the purpose of the life to which you've been called. Paul's spiritual faith is deeply rooted and rich, and it's this belief in a higher purpose that drives his music making. You'll have the privilege of hearing a couple of his compositions as we talk about their significance in his life, and you can find links to purchase these songs online at rogueonespodcast.com. While there, you can also find a list of all episodes, past and present, with additional information on each guest. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast if you enjoy yourself, and share it with your friends. This is the surest way for a podcast to be shared within communities. I would be delighted and honored if you told your friends and family about this show. So now, please enjoy this conversation with Paul Cardall. How do you explain to someone who doesn't know anything about music, doesn't know anything, how do you explain to like your parents, friends, what it is that you do? You know, that, that's a very good question. My purpose and calling is to 
take all of the experiences that I continue to go through and channel that through music so that people can access spiritual feelings. Mm. So my music is a, I create music that is a resource to help people know that they are loved by a higher power mm. and they can define whatever that power is. Where did that desire and that passion and that, where did that come from? I think it stems from being born with only a half-functioning heart, uh, being born with only half a heart, a congenital heart disease, the number one birth defect. And and you weren't even supposed to live. No, like I wasn't year. even supposed to live. And my, I had surgery in less, you know, less than a day. I was 23 years old when they opened up my, my body to operate on my heart. And then every year I'd go see the doctor, well, every six months a year, and he'd be like shocked that I was still alive and wondering why I'm able to survive with such a deformed heart. But they kept treating symptoms. I kept growing and living. But I was raised with parents who were constantly told your child is not going to live very long. What was that like for them, do you think? Hard. Gosh, I would think. Can you imagine putting your son in a crib and having to walk into your room to go to sleep, Gosh. unsure. Not knowing if when you get there the next morning, it's yeah. it'll, wow. Mm. I mean, we, we always say our parents are crazy, but you know, that's probably why. Because <laughs> they're so worried about us. Right. And they always said to me, you were made for a purpose. And then you have eight brothers and sisters. I have eight brothers and sisters. So they're oh like, gosh. here comes the, you know, here comes the uh, special one. The, you know, like I was wearing a helmet or something, but... <laughs> You didn't but, have to. No, you didn't have to wear no, a helmet, did you? No. Okay. 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 No, but often were you, in, that's were how you, you get treated, treated differently. Were yes. they by other people? By your? Well, you take your shirt off, and you've got all these scars. And I remember as a teenager, going to water parks with scars all over me, and I was insecure about it. And finally, little kids just would not stop staring at me. So I'd be like, "Listen, this is why you don't get into a gang." Oh my gosh, you did not. I did. I said, "Look, do you see this hole right here? This hole in this hole." Bullets. 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 So, you know, but again, you use humor, too, with right. the life. And and uh, I just didn't know anything different. And I was told, you know, you're not going to live very long. And when did you pick up piano? So I took piano when I was eight. I couldn't stand to take lessons. It was my great aunt. She took me down into this food storage closet that had sheet music in a big aluminum cabinet and it was spooky yeah so then i had to learn waltzes from the 20s but then i realized in the 20s she was a teenager so this is pretty hip <laughs> for her i'm like playing grunge music right now yeah i hated it i lasted six months i had one recital piece um and then i didn't pick up the piano until i was a teenager uh after a friend passed away i i went to the piano because uh, he played the piano and i just was messing around like it was a puzzle, just trying to put the pieces together. And I, it's your way to connect with them? Yes. In a way. Wow. Yeah. I wrote my first song. Uh, I went and played it for his parents. And then they called me back to play it for some of their friends. Mm. So that's where I was like, oh, you're not just, this isn't a sympathy. Play that for me. They really wanted to hear it. They thought it was good. And from the moment you started playing, it was for a purpose to help people 
Yeah, and and ever since then, every piece of music really has been with the purpose of helping an individual or it's drawn off an experience of somebody who taught me something really remarkable. So it's really not my music. It's the human, it's the soundtrack to all the, some of the deepest things we go through. What happened after you, you know, after your, your teen years and then you started doing music, what, what did that look like for you? Did you go to college and study music or what, what happened after? I registered for college. I went to college, but I was involved in leadership at college and I was uh, responsible on the fine arts board and I got involved in booking gigs for people to come to the college. And so I wasn't always in class. I was interested in hearing musicians out on the quad. So I'd organize barbecues and bring local musicians. And um, and so that was my education. And it was great because it, it helped me as I was pursuing music and just playing the piano for really for fun. I played in a restaurant. Um, I played in Nordstrom's. Mm. Um, I was just doing it as a job, as for fun. I was studying film. I wanted to be a film major. Mm. And um, I... With the goal of composing for film or actually directing, making making film, making movies? Making movies. I didn't... The thought of making money from music or film is, you know, a college professor would tell you that's silly because it's very competitive. But no matter what you go into, you have to work Mm -hmm. to get to where you want to go. And um, while I was going to college, um, I had put out a record um, called The Christmas Box that was a companion to a book called The Christmas Box that came out in 1995, before most of you were born. <laughs> and Who wrote uh, Who wrote the book and how did Rich, that happen? Richard Paul Evans wrote this book. Okay. And it was a CBS movie. 40 million people watched this with Richard Thomas from the Waltons. And so there was music that accompanied the book, and he took me on tour with him. So out of college, we approached... Um, a couple record labels, and I ended up signing with Virgin Records, and that took me out of oh. out of college to do two albums for them before I started my own record label. You just signed with Virgin Records. I mean, how did that how did that happen? Were you were you in Utah at the time? What it is is a I had something of value, maybe not the music, but I had a product connected with a New York Times bestseller that had sold ten you know ten million copies. Mm. So the label's thinking, we put this out, we're going to make, you know, 2% of whatever that 10 million was. So we're going to sell that many. And yeah, we ended up doing fairly decent with the album. Um, But then the record label with Napster and everything Mm. and an embezzlement fell apart. So there was no label. I didn't want to do smooth jazz because everything was going smooth jazz. So yeah, so I just started um, a label that focused on purpose-driven music. And that's Stone Angel? Stone Angel music. Where did that name come from? So in the Christmas box, there was a statue called the Stone Angel in the cemetery. And that statue was put there for parents who lost a child but was never able to bury the child because of SIDS or miscarriage. And even today, there are Stone Angels in a lot of cemeteries throughout the country that have been put there because Rick wrote the Christmas box and people go there for their miscarriage, their grieving, and lay flowers for their child that um, 
it never came. Why did that become the name for your label? Mainly because majority of the people that were writing me fan mail were talking about how the music had helped them during grief. And so there were a lot of connections, and that opened a whole world to me of other families experiencing the same scenario. Mm. Going back to the first time you ever played music, which was for your friend's family who had just lost their son. Yeah, and you know, and I have to thank God for everything because he he just literally just said, you know, look, here's, you got a bad heart. I gave you a bad heart. It's beautiful. You're going to deal with it. And yet you're going to come to me a lot. Mm. And But I'm going to give you music so you can explain to everybody what you're feeling. Mm. You know, it's like this gift he gave me of a bad heart. You know, he says, change your heart. You know, I took this literally. Um, <laughs> right, because you have a heart transplant, I had right? a heart transplant. So you were on the wait list for 385 days, is that right? Yeah. To get a heart. What, what were you during, doing during those days? I kept a blog, but mainly I was in an overstuffed chair with three liters of oxygen going into me. Um, I couldn't go out too many places. I had a handicap pass, which okay. was nice because you get front row at Costco. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a sobering time. Uh, I, my daughter was three, and all she knew was her dad wore oxygen, and she even said, I think girls wear makeup and boys wear oxygen. Oh my goodness. And it, I had a 50-foot cord okay. um, that went from my nose uh, in the tubing all the way down the hall to where this uh, machine was producing the oxygen. So if she needed to find me, she would just crawl and, and find that, you know, <laughs> the other end of the leash. And But she's just like, mm, three-year-old, like, mm, right, you know, yeah. what's wrong? Come on. Yeah. Come play with me. Oh, my gosh. So that that was the main was frustration of it all was, you know, I can't play with my kid. and um, I don't know what's going to happen. And when did you get the call? So I was in the hospital. I was in living in a children's hospital. A children's hospital? All the experts that understood my case were pediatric because everyone that had congenital heart disease had died. Oh, my goodness. So I was one of the few survivors. So I was with kids. Wow. The day I was rejoicing in my victory over death and all my family was in the operating room in the intensive care celebrating, there was a young girl who had been um, found, who had been assaulted, and they were taking care of her and getting her situation. And I knew about it because I could hear things. So how do you balance the joy of your victory over death versus someone who's now just been victimized? And so it's this even temper of emotions well, you go and through in, in life. Your your victory over death meant that there was someone who yeah. was defeated by death. Do you know much about who your donor was? I do. My donor came from uh, Mexico. He immigrated as a kid with his mother illegally. She married a man and the, the son got citizenship. But then she was deported with the family, but he stayed behind. Uh, he got involved in sports uh, and they were in a small mining town. So there wasn't a lot for him after high school. He either had to figure out how to get money to go to college or there, there's a cartel mm -hmm. gang. And he was starting to get kind of into that. 
when he got um, overly depressed and took his life. So three days later, his heart is, uh, you know, is, is in me. And, you know, I think, I think about him every single day and I couldn't, we couldn't find the family, but we found the stepfather and I was able to write him a letter that was translated into Spanish, basically saying that, you know, I will do all I can to honor his life by being a good person, mm. by doing all I can to, you know, um, represent and defend uh, his culture and background. And, and is it is it true that, that you climbed a, a mountain in his honor, what was it, nine months to the day that you got the... The transplant, or what? How does that well, this, story go? This podcast is getting quite depressing because while I was waiting, my my brother passed, and he was finishing up his PhD. Um, how old was he? He was thirty two. His wife was pregnant and had a daughter, and uh, uh, he got into an incident where, um, with some mental illness, and some police officers tasered him, and he died from the second taser. It was nine months into waiting for a heart transplant. It was the day after he died where I was like, there's no way I'm going to let my mother lose two kids. And I kept telling the Lord, please, you can't negotiate with God. But I, I did everything I could to negotiate and say, come on, this is, you cannot take both of us. And I don't, and I hope you didn't take him because one of us was required or whatever, however it works. However you reason. So yes, your mind, sure. your mindset's like, did he go because I needed to stay or what's the deal here? But the goal was to climb a mountain called Mount Olympus that overshadowed our home uh, growing up. And he could always climb it, and I never could. I wasn't healthy enough. But he, because of the mental illness he had, it led to his death. You couldn't see his illness on an x-ray, but you could see mine on an x-ray. So with his passing, it was a goal that I'm going to get my heart. And one year on the anniversary of his passing, we'll climb as a family in his honor and in the honor of my donor. It was 90 days later I got my, my call that the heart was available. They put it in me and uh, six months later we climbed a mountain, some like eight to 9,000 feet. I've done it since and it was miserable. <laughs> really? <laughs> but it was, I mean, Did it feel I'd... miserable at that time, at that moment when you were doing it? No, because you have all your family there for a purpose. I've thought about it uh, time and time again, and it makes me realize that so many of us try to climb mountains all by ourselves. Mm. And when you do that, you're dwelling in your misery. But when you have a community with you climbing, you can laugh as you go, you can cry as you go, you can communicate and have a good time, even though you're all in misery but you're ascending together because then when you get to the top it wants to get some to the top of something by themselves unless they're mm. you know alone with God doing it but sure. you want to be with community you want to be with family and you want to have something that's purpose driven are you doing music during this time and then when you do music after you've come through all of that is it a deeply painful process to unearth these things for the purpose of other people grieving I couldn't do a lot of performing while I was sick uh, and I kept a blog but when I was in the hospital there was a there was a piano down the hallway and so after everybody would leave they would take me down to the piano and I could sit there for about an hour and just play what I was feeling and I just started writing music about 
these emotions. And one song became called Gracie's Theme. And it's one of my most downloaded pieces of music. And it was simply about uh, an infant that, that had a heart transplant but did not survive. We had the same team. And the parents of that girl that, that, that died would visit me in the hospital and encourage me to live. And, and um, it's all worth it. Everything's great. You know, like they had just lost their daughter oh and they're like, you're going to survive. This is going to be awesome. And and so I wrote that song, Gracie's theme for that family. And it, um, it since became kind of the anthem for families with congenital heart disease. So, yeah, so I found time to do it. But then after I was thinking, oh, yeah, I've been through this crazy ordeal. I'll just come up with all this music, you know, but it didn't come. And I'm like, what's going on? I can't write anything. I can't. And I forgot a lot of my music. I was getting really frustrated because in the intensive care, a manager came in and committed me to play these concerts. And they wanted to PR everything. And I just said, I was not in the right frame of mind. I said, yes. Mm-hmm. And so within six months, I was playing shows. And, and, and so I was not, I needed time to heal, I think too often we get these huge miracles and then we spread ourselves thin instead of really taking a step back and going, what just happened? You go through this massive time of, of physical kind of transformation almost. Now you can do things again. Yeah. Um, did that ramp up your music quite a bit? Were you Was Stone Angel just kind of, was that a new time for Stone Angel? Was a lot happening? And I guess what year was that that the transplant happened? So I had it... Uh, 2009. Okay. Okay. And then 2011, I released an album called New Life. Hmm. And there, it's a picture of me in a wheat field because it's time to harvest. <laughs> and all the songs on there dealt with the emotion of being facing, facing an unknown future and then having that assurance that you, you're going to be around a while. So it's a very spring-oriented restoration, resurrection. Um, there's a song in there called Life and Death, which is based on a theme from Michael Giacchino that he wrote for a show called Lost. It's a little old thing. The theme was so beautiful. It was only a 30-second theme that I took it, and I elaborated on it. And um, Life and Death has become my most downloaded piece of music across every border of of culture and faith and Muslims and Buddhist and Judaism and people just all over connect with the melody and find something spiritual in it. Turn to my conversation with Paul Cardall in just a moment. If you've been enjoying this show, you can dive deeper into the Rogue Ones podcast world by spending some time at rogueonespodcast.com. Not only can you find a full listing of episodes, but you can join the email community, 
listen to the Rogue One Spotify playlist with songs compiled by listeners, and you can even get Rogue merch, like hats and mugs. That's all online at RogueOnesPodcast.com. Now, back to my conversation with Paul Cardall. And you're doing all the administration of all of this at this point, right? Yeah. What is that? Um, a lot of people that listen to this podcast, um, they're interested in the multifaceted person who's not only created the thing, but is administrating it as well, who is actively going to the meetings and, and doing the thing. What was that? What is that like for you? How did you? I know now some of those things have been yeah. um, delegated to other people. Um, but do you, can you speak to that a little bit? How do you focus on the things you need to focus on? And how do you do the things well? Well, I lived, I lived in the Wild West. I was out there in Utah, and I didn't know too many people in the music industry. So all I did was focus on what I had. But I read Billboard magazine, and I read uh, uh, everything that was happening with the music. And so I was aware of Pandora and Spotify and all the streaming, the Internet and all this stuff. And I, le- I, I, I remember early on... It, how much it would cost to design a website. Hmm. And I was like, well, it's probably cheaper if I just go learn it. <laughs> so I went and I learned how to design a website. I learned graphic design. I learned how to do video editing, how to make videos, how to do album artwork. And um, so Stone Angel Music really is me and my wife for the last 20 years hmm. kind of doing everything. I did all the PR. <laughs> I couldn't even find a publicist. Nobody had interest in piano music. It's like really, you can stream. I've got two billion streams, and yet who do you get to? You know, they can't explain it. They're all asking, "How did you pull it off?" But at the same time, it's like, well, I don't know. You just survive and adapt, and you do it. And and how do you how do you keep from getting overwhelmed by everything that's that was in front of you? Because when you get an email from somebody who says, "My mother." passed away listening to life and death oh, goodness. and it brought peace into our room i knew because it's a calling and from the moment you started playing it was for a purpose to help people yeah every piece of music really has been with the purpose of helping an individual or it's drawn off an experience of somebody who taught me something really remarkable so it's really not my music it's the human it's the soundtrack to all the some of the deepest things we go through mm-hmm. but there's a lot of hope in the music even though it's melancholy it's melancholy but to get people into a mind mind space of you know a space where they can start thinking about what does all of this mean in the grander yeah. scheme of life but there's also this feeling that is like a warm blanket being wrapped around you and there's no words to explain it mm. but music can create a, a situation where the type of music i do it's very intimate you know god says go into your closets mm. to pray mm. that means nobody's in there you're worshiping all by yourself it's you and him the goal of the music has always been to provide those intimate moments it's been very clear to me from day one what what my job is in er- on earth and it so it takes time to kind of explain it and delegate it and i know that we could get a lot further if i had a whole bunch of people involved um but my listeners are the ones that are doing the work because they're the ones that are sharing it mm. they're the ones that see it for what it is and and it just multiplies but now since i moved to nashville got a lot of people that are aware 
of it and how we built it and are anxious to expose it to even more parts of the world. What what qualities do you think were built up in yourself and in your character from all your experiences that 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 made you able to live a life of this sort of um, extraordinary, you know, remarkable? Those are very good questions because why do certain people, why are certain people able to do certain things? And I think I had to grow up fast because I was told you probably won't live to adulthood. You probably might not live through the year. You probably not survive this surgery. So I was constantly thinking about the afterlife and that's my retirement. So people save for retirement, but I was trying to figure out everything I needed to do in preparation to go to the other side. And much of it was like, you know, Lord, I remember when you were talking to Peter and James and, and, and John and the guys, and you were like, well, where do you guys want to go when I'm gone? And Peter and James were like, well, dude, I'm coming with you. Mm-hmm. And John was quiet. And he said, well, John, what about you? He's like, I kind of would like to stay <laughs> and preach until you come back. Mm-hmm. And I was always telling the Lord throughout my childhood, I'm John. Mm. I'm John. I'd like to stay and work here um, for your purpose and then take me whenever you want. Mm. Um, the last question I like to ask my guests is for someone who's also looking to live a life of extraordinary measures, what's the best piece of advice you can give? I heard Tom Jackson, who produces concerts, he said, you need to ask yourself this question. Are you driven or are you being led? And if you can answer the second one, you're more likely to succeed because Mm -hmm. when you're driven, you kind of like plow through things and people's emotions aren't as valuable. But when you're led, you've acknowledged that you're not driving the car. So it's much easier to recorrect. Mm. Um, and I don't even think you have to really take much deep meditation on, okay, God, where, where am I supposed to go now? It's, I think it's just a matter of impressions. Does this feel right? Mm-hmm. Is this going to hurt anybody? Is this going to help anybody? And if it's if you know it's going to help somebody, then you do it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the key to living an extraordinary life. <laughs> Paul's life story is heavy. When we talked, tears began to fill my eyes as the realization of the depth of his circumstances rushed over me. To have another person's heart for your own is nearly impossible to comprehend, but then to celebrate the new life you've been given at the cost of someone else's is a deeply confounding idea that's difficult to understand. So thank you for joining us in this difficult conversation, my friend, and it was a pleasure to tell his story. Until next time, we'll talk soon.